Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, History Heroes, and welcome to the day that the first woman reached the North Pole in 1971. What an exciting achievement. And we're here to celebrate other women's achievements, women that you probably haven't heard of, while we drink some pretty bitchin' wine. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily, and welcome to Whining About Herbstory, the women's history podcast where we whine about women you probably haven't heard of. I like that you're just repeating what I said. I know, but it it felt like we need to say the thing. We don't have a fully scripted intro, Emily. Yeah, that's we fine. don't need to say the thing. I will say you were thinking of your intro for so long, and I was no, like, I was "What the hell is she doing today?" In <laughs> yeah, history. today is also the day that they found the uh, the Heaven's Gate cult members' bodies. April fifth. No, mm-hmm. no, sorry, I'm in the past. I'm on. It's March twenty sixth. Oh, you're you're, you're doing the day we're recording. I'm I doing see. the day this episode comes ah, out. Ah, very smart, very smart. Yeah, yeah, that was a weird thing I read today. I was like. Oh, okay. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. Moment of silence. You know what's funny is that, you know, they were they were wearing like the the joggers and the Nikes. Yeah, it was weird. And Nike actually pulled that shoe from their from the shelves for a while as like a ooh, like it's associated with this horrible, horrible like mass suicide. We don't want this. But now those shoes sell for like a small fortune. If you can get your hands on that like but vintage yeah. shoe, I don't know what they call it. I'm a wine person. I don't know what they call shoes. <laughs> I would assume something along those lines. Yeah. Which is dark and scary. And So, we do have a say their name today, which is great. I'm super excited. I've been like, I've, I've been grinning ear to ear all since day. Since I told you about yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, like since yesterday. So our shout out today is Meg, Mama Meg from Australia. What's up, Meg? I hope she's listening to this with her kids right now and they're all going, oh, dang. Right. <laughs> By the way, I'm so sorry. I'm still losing my voice. So if I sound like I'm being strangled, it's just my throat. It Kelly's not actually strangling me during this recording. We'll see how, how punny she gets. <laughs> um, but yeah, Meg, we thank you so much for your email. And, you know, we love that you're empowering your daughters by having them listen to your show and your son. And we, we love you. Yeah. And we love your children too, but we love you more. So Meg sent us a really lovely email. Like Meg knows what's going on, but no one else does. Talking about like Ann Atwater and like commenting on that episode, but also saying that she and her kids listen to the podcast in the car. And uh, it sounds like her, she's got teenage daughters and a younger son and son will say like they said a bad word i'm like oh no we say them all the time we're so sorry i think i'm not sorry I well think it's adorable we we constantly joke about how like if you're too yeah like if you're young you shouldn't be listening to this anyway but it sounds like they're getting some value out of it so that makes us super happy right and we hope you're in the car listening to this right now Enjoying the Australian sunshine and the water. And the warmth, I assume. Oh, God. I bet it's so warm there. I'm a little jealous. It's sunny and glistening. It was sunny today for like half the day. Yeah, that now was pretty cool. it looks like cool. it's going to rain, but apparently it's not. It's just going to be overcast it's and gonna shitty. It's going to look like it's going to rain. It's going to tease us. It's supposed to be in the 60s on Monday. I yeah we're getting there all next week is supposed to be like sunny and warm which is exciting I'm pissed though because tomorrow's supposed to rain and I was like no no it is the weekend this is when I get to venture outside you bitch (laughs) sorry I said a bad word (laughs) 
Uh-oh. I, you know, I had a I had a teacher friend, and I went over to her house. Uh, a bunch of us teachers got together, and we were, like, playing card games. And her daughter was there, and another teacher's daughter was there. And the other adults would, like, swear. And, like, you know, pretty vulgar language. And I was trying not to because I was like, the kids weren't, like, in the room with us, but they were running around the house. And I, I said like, shit, I was like, oh God, sorry. And the teacher goes, oh, that's okay. They both know those are daddy words. And I was like, you know, like, oh, we don't say daddy words. I was like, okay, first of all, why they have to be daddy words? Because mama here likes to swear. (laughs) That's funny. But yeah, it was, it was one of those things where the kids understood that, you know, there's a time and a place for that language and they are too young to use that language. I'm like, I mean, that's a way to do it. Yeah. Like. There you go, because kids will learn swear words, whether or not they learn them at home. To be perfectly honest, I learned them in middle school, actually before middle school. On the back of the bus in middle, like, yeah, potentially before middle school. But like, yeah, I went to a Catholic school and it, like the back of the bus was where the bad kids sat. And so like <laughs> they, I learned a lot of things from the back of the bus. Here's the thing. Catholic school kids, the dirtiest fuckers out there. Oh, yeah. We're terrible. We are so repressed. I remember when well, I was going to we Catholic aren't school. Anymore. Not anymore. We've been able to let loose and live free. But I remember when I was in Catholic school and I had a computer in my room and my friend and I made a game of typing swear words we knew into the computer <laughs> and like dot com. So like shit.com, damn.com crap.com we were such fucking babies i remember damn.com was like a weird poetry site and i'm like oh really what the fuck is this who fucking bought damn.com and turned it into a poetry site how like bad words and now you're just like you know what string of expletives here's the thing there is a time and a place that poor little boy's just sitting there like oh my god (laughs) he's going to oh shit no there's a time and a place for foul language our podcast is a time time and and a place place. school with your family in public usually not the time nor the place also if you're like 12 don't i'm still the type of person that if i swear in front of like my mom i'm like i'm so sorry mom oh god i'm (laughs) like not that my mom doesn't think that I swear and she doesn't actually care I don't know why it's just like for some reason like swearing in front of my mother is still weird for me I remember one I've never sworn in front of kids I've taken care of I always like I I know I'm able to like do a switch in my head where I'm like I'm in nanny mode now it's kind of like when you're at work you're like I'm at work yeah exactly but this one time uh it was in front of a kid I was like oh shit and I dragged it out and I went talky mushrooms and the kid was like, I know what you were going to say. I was like, but it doesn't matter because I didn't say it, did I? <laughs> Kevin. His name's not Kevin. It doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, funny. I could yeah. see you being that sassy, though. I, I was. I was. Because I was like, don't you try it. Like, how do you know what I was going to say, you dirty birdie? <laughs> but yeah. So, Mama Meg, thank you so much for your lovely email after that little weird explosive tangent and I I don't know I think that's really sweet that she's sharing this history that is not readily available right I think it's awesome with her kids I wonder what they thought of the Catherine Knight episode because that was uh that was one of your your Aussie ladies and then uh you covered Tilly Devine and uh the Australian mob ladies yeah why is it everyone we cover from Australia is a criminal is it because they were Cause a it penal used to colony? be a criminal penal colony, maybe? <laughs> oh my God. Drink the. Meg, do yourself a favor. Get some of that 19 Crimes wine. 
sit on your patio, turn us on, look out at the water and just like live the life I wish I was living right now. <laughs> yeah, we're a little jealous. Because when you described that, I was like, Meg, can we come visit? Because this sounds amazing. <laughs> can we just come sit on your balcony? Can you stick you? a picture so I can like blow it up in my office and pretend I'm there? <laughs> I'd be game for that. But yeah. And uh, so thank you, Meg. And like, seriously, we love your emails and uh, keep sending those in and we'll go on a really explosive tangent about you too. Yeah. You'll be our say their name for the day. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, what we are drinking is wholly appropriate, you know, for our say their name because we are drinking an Australian wine. So today we are going to be drinking Stardust and Muscle. It's kind of a gross sounding wine. Stardust and Muscle. I like it like though. Stardust sounds it totally, great. Muscle it totally sounds matches. A weird. It totally matches the label though because it's a circus, yeah, it's a circus scene. scene. Guys, there's a kangaroo in a sweater jumping through a hoop on this. There's a strong man holding up a goat, and there's like a sugar glider flying through the air. There's so much to look at in this label, and I love it. So this is a 2017 Shiraz from Central Victoria. And uh, on the front, it says, enjoyed by lords, ladies, and vagabonds alike. Ooh, you get to I decide like which that. ones of those you are. <laughs> I, I like that, too. Um, so, you know, in places where they ask you for your pronouns, like, are you a lord, are you a lady, or are you a vagabond? Like, dude, I'm a vagabond. I'm a vagabond. Fuck I just yeah. want to choose vagabond. That's awesome. So, stardust and muscle. Shiraz has the wonderful ability to make wines which are per- pretty and perfumed, stardust, and at the same time full-bodied and robust, the muscle. In this case, we combine fruit from a dry-grown vineyard for plenty of grip and muscle, with cooler climate fruit including from our home vineyard to boost the pretty red fruit and violet perfume. Angels, thank you so much for the opportunity to make wine with you. I just love it. Cheers, Sam Plunkett Winemaker, because this is for my Naked Wines box. I know we've had Sam Plunkett Wines before. I know, like that name sounds familiar. I think, hold on. I think that butterfly effect that I really like is a Sam Plunkett. It's from Victoria, Australia, too. Maybe. But yeah, I, I love this label. It's funny because I don't actually remember buying this wine. I don't remember picking it out. I mean, and I, the and box I, has been here for a while. I know, but I feel like I would remember this label because it's it's so much. It's exactly the wine I would pick out, too. Yeah, that's, that's kind of nice. All right. Well, uh, cheers to Meg and your family. Nostrovia to good health, as cheers. my grandma used to say. Are you Russian? No, okay. but Jean was uh, Polish, and they were invaded by Russia a bunch of times, at least once. Things tend I to think. transfer when you're invaded by yeah, other countries. Yeah, and not, Nostrovia isn't even Russian. It's like a bastardized pronunciation of what it is in Russian. It's like uh, Gardelou in Scotland. That was the... Um, butchered pronunciation of the French like look out below when they would throw their chamber pots out the window. So Nostrovia is the English mispronunciation of the Russian word Nazadrovi meaning cheers. Yeah. Nostrovia is now used as English slang for let's get drunk and as a common drinking toast. So cheers. Meg. Nostrovia. Nostrovia. Maybe an English bastardization, but when you say it, you got to say it in a Russian accent. <laughs> oh, shit. That that wine, like, bum-rushed the back of my throat. It's that muscular man on the front. He just fucking powered through. Oh, this is good, though. I like it. it. I like Shiraz's because they're 
a little drier and they have a bite to them, but they're really satisfying. Right. I know there's a few reds that we're not particularly fond of. And for some reason, I always think it's Shiraz, but it never is. It is. Um, it's something else. I think that begins with that. It's the one that tastes like church wine. Yeah. And I can never remember well, what it is. We, we don't like. Um, oh, oh, oh. Um, port. We don't port. like port wine. Yeah. No, Because those are the fan. ones that taste like raisins. Or Greek church wine. Not a fan of that because that also tastes like dates and raisins. I'm pretty sure that was a type of port too. I, I suspect because it was like the same fucking wine, you know. All right. Well, I am going first today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so today I'm going to be whining about Hazel Ying Lee. Ooh. Yes. So uh, Hazel Ying Lee was born on August 24th, 1912 in Portland, Oregon to parents Ute and Sue, who were first generation Chinese Americans who had emigrated from Taishan Guangdong or sorry, Guangdong, China. Yay. I put in the pronunciation guide, but I. Uh, then you mispronounced your. Well, because G, I wrote G W A N G, which could be Guang, but it's Guangdong. I remember it was like a really harsh on the front. So, the couple opened a Chinese restaurant in Old Town, Chinatown, which is by the Willamette River that we keep hearing about in our wine. Mm-hmm. I still don't know if I'm pronouncing correctly because I apparently refuse to look it up, but screw it. <laughs> it's close enough. It's my podcast and I'll say if I want to. So, Hazel's parents kept busy running their business and raising eight children. Oof. That's a lot of kids. I also yeah, just is. had Chinese food today. I, I must have been in the mood because yeah, <laughs> from this story, because like I wrote that, I was like, how good does Chinese food sound right now? And now I am I passing mean, American that. Chinese food, right, let's be right. honest. Well, and it's, it's interesting because when the Chinese started selling their food in the United States, it wasn't well received So because they had to Americanize it, making it like really sweet and fatty and super not what they eat back in China. MSG, baby. Yep. Which is not bad for you. You know, every time they're like, this is going to kill you. I'm like, everything's going to kill me. Okay, I get it. Like, breathing's going to kill me. Let's just get it over with. Drinking too much water. It'll kill you. I'm just going to live my life, damn it. Unfortunately for Hazel, she grew up during a time that was rife with racism, particularly against Chinese people. And this was during a time where a lot of Chinese people were coming over to the United States and settling. And so, of course, with that influx of Chinese people came with a lot of xenophobia. And it happens every time, like an influx happens, like when the Irish came over, everyone the Italians, hated the Irish, the Polish, exactly. the like we've God, you know what? For being such a toss salad of different like immigrants yeah, for being and cultures, the pot, we we're kind hate of people. We hate new people. <laughs> Despite this, Hazel had a pretty regular childhood. She enjoyed sports, playing cards, and learned how to drive, which was a big deal at the time because cars were just becoming commonplace. After graduating from high school in 1929, Hazel got one of the few jobs a Chinese-American woman could have during that time as an elevator operator at the Liebs department store in downtown Portland. That's kind of cool. Here's the thing, though. Were elevators that difficult to operate, or did people just like no, the idea of fancy. having... I was going to say, was it just like to have someone do it for you? Yeah. And then whenever I think of an elevator operator, I think of it as like a job that a person of color held, you know? And it's like, okay, so do we just really want to like 
make these people subservient. So we're going to give them a nonsense job that just makes them do stuff that we could totally do ourselves. In a really fancy elevator. They gave the elevator operators seats to sit on. Oh. On non-fancy jobs like the Titanic. They had to stand. Oh, loud. How is the Titanic not considered a fancy job? I don't know. I just never remember them sitting. Yeah. Wait, what? Like you were there? No, like in the movie. Oh, well, of course, that is, you know, the most 10, accurate historical. historically accurate. <laughs> yes, yes, totally. We can take everything we know about the Titanic and thank James Cameron for that knowledge. I mean, Jack was a real, Jack Dawson was a real person. That was spooky. I remember right. learning that and thinking how weird that was. I guess people still leave flowers on his grave. That's creepy. Because they have a hard on for Leo. I'm like, I mean, Great for honoring so, the dead. Weird reason it, to do it. It does look like elevators used to be operated manually. Like that was a thing. Oh, so it wasn't just so them like pushing the button. A crank. Like oh way my back goodness. when. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Okay, so it was a job that needed to be done, but it seems like totally on purpose that it was a job that people of color normally had. Yep. It was like a low-paying, subservient kind of thing. But she's working. She's making some money. She's doing her thing. Um, but unfortunately, this job didn't have a lot of upward mobility. No. <laughs> this is the part where Kelly actually starts to strangle me. But Hazel would soon reach new heights. <laughs> I need a new co-host. I am just pushing the boundaries of how long we're gonna like last as friends and co-hosts. Keep drinking wine; it'll yeah. be fine. That's why we had to drink during this podcast to make each other bearable. We're kidding. So we, and, we love each other. I mean, most of the time. <laughs> in 1932, she experienced her first airplane ride in a local air show and was hooked. Hazel vowed she would learn to fly. At least my puns make sense. At least my puns make sense. They're on the learning to fly thing. Yes. familiar. Lucky for her, she wasn't the only one with dreams of flying. She joined the Chinese Flying Club of Portland and began taking flying lessons. That's awesome. That's one of the great things about a big city. They have like everything for everyone. You can find some of the most niche groups Unfortunately, I have a like sneaking suspicion that the reason there was a Chinese flying club is because all of the white flying clubs wouldn't let them. So it was right. made out of necessity, but still good for them for being like, we're going to do our thing and we're going to learn to fly and fuck all of you. So Hazel's mother wasn't too jazzed about her daughter's new pursuit. She felt it was a waste of time and that there were no real career options with it. After all, while commercial flight was a thing at this time, it wouldn't become super popular until the 1950s. And at this time, it made me think of Bessie Coleman. A lot of jobs that you could do as a pilot were like doing stunts. Yeah, and it was like air shows and stuff. Yeah, yeah you know, which... A career as a performer is always kind of a risky thing. You're really like taking your fate into your own hands, which right. while super admirable, you know, can lead to instability. As we've seen with this recent pandemic, it's really hit performers hard. Yeah, it has. It's really sad. Yeah. But Hazel, despite all these concerns, couldn't stop. Her sister Frances described... It's like us in this podcast. Right? We just can't, can't stop, stop. Won't stop. No matter how much you beg us. So strap in and strap on, everyone. We're going to be here for the long haul. Yeah, for every email we get from someone like Meg, there's 20 begging us to just stop 
now and we won't. And we're like, <laughs> no, there's that one email that's like, I love your show. We're doing this for Meg and Veronica and Melissa and all the other cool Andy people out and there. everyone else. Yes, Marissa. I, I'm just going to start naming names of people Bibiana. that we love. Yes. Oh. Hashtag history. <laughs> They're a patron. Uh, Historical <laughs> Hold on, let Body me just, count podcast. Let me just name drop a bunch of people for the next 10 minutes and then we'll move on. All right. So 10 minutes later. <laughs> 10 minutes later. <laughs> so uh Francis described Hazel's feelings about flying as quote, it was the thought of doing something she loved. She enjoyed the danger of doing something that was new to Chinese girls. Because this was very unusual, not just for Chinese people in the United States, but for women, for everyone, yeah, women period. But then add the fact that she's a person of color on top of it. Like it's even more so. Yeah. In October of 1932, the same year she had her first airplane ride, Hazel became one of the first Chinese American women to earn her pilot's license. Go Hazel. It's your birthday. Have a party. Cause it's your birthday. Go flying. Cause it's your birthday. Right. And you got your license girl. Yes. It's time to take off into the yeah. sky, into the wild blue yonder. Yeah, she's not going to ride off into the sun. She's going to fly off into that right. ditch. So this broke down barriers and stereotypes of not only women, but Chinese American women. Mm-hmm. So I, I was going to try to paraphrase this, but author Judy Young writes this so eloquently when she describes this. She says, although few in number, these first Chinese American aviators in their attempt to participate in a daring sport broke the stereotype of the passive Chinese woman and demonstrated the ability of Chinese American women to compete in a male dominated field. Yeah, That's everything you need to know. And it kind of made me think of uh, Anna Mae Wong. Yeah. And how the only movie roles for her were either the like seductive scheming dragon lady or the subservient, very quiet. Well, you saw like, that with a few of the black actor actresses we've covered that they're like, you're going to be a maid or you're going to wear right. a dirty apron to go see your husband off to war. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, you're seeing those stereotypes being played on the big screen and they they're also playing out in real life. And that's why they're playing on the big screen. And right. she's breaking that down. And her and other Chinese American aviators, particularly women. So with her pilot's license also came love as Hazel met her future husband, Clifford Louis Yim Kuhn. Kuhn? Shit. I say his name once. That's it. I'm sorry, Louis. Uh, who was also a pilot. And they definitely had a bunch of airplane metaphors in their wedding vows. And just like I did for uh, Junko Tabei, I wrote what I think their wedding vows should have been because she married a mountaineer and I wrote their mountaineering wedding vows. Yeah, so remember. now I'm writing aviator wedding vows. So if you want Emily to write your wedding vows, just send us an email about what you like. Yeah, yeah. What are you and your partner into? And I will They'll write some very really punny. punny wedding vows that you can choose to take or leave. <laughs> When I look at you, my heart does a barrel roll, and every day feels like first class. You make my heart soar, and if you'll have me, now boarding our love. Our marriage will need no emergency exits, but I promise to always assist you with your oxygen mask after placing my own mask over my mouth and nose. The reception food was just tiny bags of peanuts and flat soda. And little liquor bottles. Mm-hmm. Teeny tiny liquor, liquor bottles. bottles. <laughs> And remember to place your trays in the upright position at the end of the wedding. I promise to place that ass in the upright position. Hey, oh! 
<laughs> oh my god, can you imagine sexy airplane themed foreplay? <laughs> no, and I don't know if I want. Now to. boarding my dick. <laughs> Ooh, let me taxi onto the runway. <laughs> Oh my god, it's worse when my voice is cutting out. It's like is dirtier. it worse or is it better? I don't know. Listeners <laughs> tell us. <laughs> so it wasn't long before Hazel had the opportunity to put her newly earned pilot's license to use. So we're going to go back in time just a smidge for some historical context. So on September 18th, 1931, so like a year before she got her pilot's license. The Japanese invaded Manchuria follow, following a false flag operation by the Japanese, which they set up to justify the invasion. So basically, they're invading like northeastern China because mm-hmm. the Japanese set off some bombs near a, rail, a railway that they controlled. Okay. And then we're like, China, why are you trying to blow up our railway? It totally wasn't us. We're going to invade you now. And China and Japan... Have a really a really long history of just not not, getting along. Yeah, and that's putting it so that's so reductive and so simple. Uh, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It's just I'm not going to get into it in this episode. Two years later, (laughs) twenty thousand hours later, but so basically, Japan committed an attack in China, blamed it on the Chinese to justify their own invasion. So the war between the Chinese and the Vain Japanese ended in February of 1932, and the Japanese established their own puppet state called Manchukuo. I might not be saying that right. It's fine. Here's the thing. I'm be, I'm super glossing over this. There's a ton more to this history, but for our purposes, I'm not delving into deep detail, but it's really fascinating because this is pre-World War II, and I had no idea that Japan invaded China during this time. Hmm. It was absolutely horrific. Like, some of the worst war crimes ever were committed during this attack, during this invasion. It's really heavy. It's really dark. I highly recommend everyone look into it, but just for the purposes of our story and for time's sake, I didn't get into it, but it happened. Japan invaded China. Not cool guys. In response to the invasion in 1933, Hazel joined other Chinese Americans and traveled to China. They offered to help the Chinese air force in their efforts to expel the Japanese. However, despite their desperate need for pilots, the Chinese air force wouldn't accept women as pilots, which I'm like, how many times have we seen this? Well, I feel like we see them finally cave and accept women because they're so desperate. But the Chinese air force was just like, no, it's a no go. Instead, they assigned Hazel to a desk job, only allowing her to perform the occasional commercial flight. So she did fly a little, but she wasn't engaging in military operations. Yeah, she wasn't helping with what the reason she came there to help. And she was, her desk job was military. I thought that was interesting, though, because she was born in the United States. Her parents had come from China, but for her to want to go back, and to help, help out. Yeah, yeah, the 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 country where her heritage is from, I thought was a lot of other Chinese Americans did too. That yeah, wasn't I think just that's her. great. I thought that was very sweet. So Hazel wasn't too happy about being saddled with a desk job, so she moved to Canton, which is located in Guangdong in the Guangdong province, which is where her parents were from. Uh, There she worked as a pilot for a private airline, acting as one of the few women pilots in China, period. So she's, you know, she's flying, she's making a living out of it, she's doing her thing. Right. She's staying in China, even though she's not directly helping with the the war effort at this time. 
Then in 1937, uh, the Japanese invaded China. Again, I think it was that they expanded their reach from their puppet state and deeper into China. Um, And this was a conflict that would last until the end of World War II. So this was not technically them entering World War II because I don't think that was until they signed a treaty with the Axis powers. But that was one of the reasons they did it because they're like, well, we want China and we need all of your help to get us more territory and to further our goals, you know? Yeah. So Hazel did not escape the fighting as can't, in Canton, where she was living, because it suffered air raids, which killed hundreds of civilians. Hazel worked to shelter friends and neighbors from the raids, saving their lives. So she's in the shit, and she's trying to help as many people as she can. Again, she tried to join join the Chinese Air Force, but was denied because she was a woman and a (laughs) non-citizen. Here's the thing. I could totally see the United States doing that, like, say, someone from... China came over and they're like, I want to help you with your air force. They I can see them like, being like, you're not Who a citizen. Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Although the military has had um, non-citizens join the military with promises of citizenship and then just totally not given them citizenship. Shocker. Yeah. God. What? They lied to you and made you false promises once they were done with you? That's crazy. Right. Eager to join the war effort, Hazel escaped China and returned to the United States where she got a job buying war materials for China. So she's kind of staying in these like um, outer rim support roles, trying to support the effort, the war effort for China in whatever way she can. So my next section is titled, is it a bird? A plane? No, it's a wasp. Oh, Oh, I think I know where you're going. I think I just figured it out. Yep. So at this time, the United States was not officially involved in World War II. That that is until December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese carried out their infamous attack on Pearl Harbor, bringing the United States into World War II. That was a great movie with Bill Murray. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was sarcasm. Way to go, guys. I will say I just watched a, a video recently about the battle at Midway oh, yeah. and how close we came to the Japanese invading us. And like, man, here's the thing, it, you know, with 2020, we're like, why did you bomb us and get us involved so we could come in and like kick your asses? Here's the thing though. They, they totally they... could have kicked our asses. Well, and the other thing was, is they didn't realize our Navy was out on a training mission. So they thought they were going to bomb us completely cripple our Navy and then invade us. Yeah. But that didn't happen because the majority of our Navy was out on a training mission. So while Pearl Harbor was terrible and we did lose quite a lot of people and several ships, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Yeah. How weird is it to think that something like Pearl Harbor could have been worse? But yeah, I was watching that video about the Battle of Midway and I'd heard of it, but I never realized how decisive of a battle it was as far as like turning the tides of the war. And I was like, oh my God, we were like this close to getting screwed in World War II. It's so scary to think that it was that close. Anyway, so we've joined World War II and this meant that thousands of male pilots were deployed to fight in Europe and the Pacific theater. But the war took its toll and it became apparent that there were not enough male pilots to sustain the war effort. Shocker. 
As we've talked about before, times of great need tend to blur socially constructed gender roles, and the United States Army Air Force established the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP, in 1943, which is a bitchin' name. And this was actually a combination of two previously formed, like, women pilot brigades. I don't get a ton into it, because again, this is Hazel's story, for time's sake. I can't dive too deep. Maybe for a history happenings, I could totally cover the history of the wasps because yeah, it's be really, really fascinating. Cool. Yeah. So the purpose of the wasps was to free up male pilots for combat roles while the women tested aircraft, flew ferrying missions, trained other pilots, and even towed targets for anti-aircraft gun practice. Hey, can you tow this target behind your plane and we're going to shoot at you? Don't get hit. Just like let us hit the other thing. Right. Cool, 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 cool. Of the twenty, so much fun, right? Of the twenty-five thousand applicants, only one thousand eight hundred and thirty were accepted into the WASP training program. Wow, that's like nothing. Yeah. Oh my god, that's insane. They also had a cartoon mascot that was created by Roald Dahl and drawn by Disney, and so she was a chibi gremlin girl named. Fifanella, and she was adorable because World War II is when everyone's like gremlins on the planes. So because these are lady pilots, they made a lady gremlin who's like super adorable. I don't know. Like normally I hear like gremlin and I'm like, isn't that insulting? No, because she's she's not them, but she's like their mascot, you know? Okay. It's like, you know, the the Philly frenetic or fanatic is gross and weird but I don't know what you're talking about you don't know the Philly fanatic I might let me let me look it up I was gonna say look it up because it's gross I hate him I say frenetic because I watch it's always sunny and that's what they call him like thing yeah Yeah. there's no way to describe that it is not it says he is a large furry green bipedal flightless bird with an extendable tongue so he's like an anteater really yeah, that's apparently I, I a feel bird. like I feel like anteater would have been a better description than a bipedal flightless bird. Billy, what the fuck are you guys doing over there? Jesus Christ. Lots of things. Anyway, Hazel jumped at the chance to join and it's easy to see why. She loved flying and was an experienced pilot. She wanted to support her country's effort in the war. And this was her chance to help fight back against the Japanese who had invaded China and bombed her city and like killed her friends and neighbors. Right. So Hazel was accepted into the U.S. Air Force and reported to Avenger Field in Sweetwater, Texas. Avenger Field. I right. Love that. Avengers. Assemble. Assemble. <laughs> Where she underwent a six-month training program. And the program was tough, and it wasn't without its own dangers. I mean, that's pretty decent, though. Like, sometimes in wartime, they're like, okay, you've had a week. Have fun. Bye. Oh, man. I just finished listening to an episode uh, from Anxious and Afraid. Seriously, check them out. They're a really great other lady-led podcast where they covered the Indian Annapolis disaster and they were talking about how the sol- the sailors on board the ship were like fresh out of oh, yeah. I don't know navy school and a bunch of them didn't even know how to swim and I'm like I'm sorry you're gonna stick these kids on a like boat day one who training. have never seen the water like now the navy requires you to know how to swim but this is world war ii they're desperate for people most people I don't think knew how to swim back then Period. But I'm like, dude, if I'm getting on a ship, I want to know how to fucking swim. Oh, yeah. I don't trust that thing to stay above water for more than two seconds. (laughs) Good grief. Best case scenario, get stuck in a canal and, 
you know, disrupts Stops billions of dollars of like e-commerce. Jesus. Yeah. It's still stuck. I saw a gif where it was, you know, that scene in Austin Powers where he gets the cart yep, stuck and in and it the was the boat hole. instead. <laughs> like, God, how do you think that guy is feeling? Oh, yeah. I read something today. Like, they're going to have to, yeah, like, basically dig out a shit ton of sand so that they can actually get the boat out. Yeah, I will say, I was talking with Jared about this. So in the United States, uh, we've just had two horrific mass shootings, one of which at the very least is racially motivated against Asian people. Yeah. Fucking A, guys. And uh, so I was telling Jared, I was like, I know that this is disrupting, you know, world trading and billions of dollars of commerce. But if this is the worst thing that happens in the next month, I would be thrilled. I would be so happy because they're just stuck. No one's dying. No one's trapped in the hull underwater. Right. We're not trying to figure out if someone's going to live or die. The ship is just wedged right? like, yeah, in the Like, yeah, the sand. guy who did it might get fired. And that's probably the worst thing that's going to happen. Yeah, like, I'll take it. I will take it and I will eat it all day long. Anyway, so... This training was kind of dangerous, and apparently when she was flying with the instructor, uh, the instructor put the plane into a loop unexpectedly. Oh, God, that would terrify me. Well, Hazel's seatbelt wasn't fastened properly, and she actually fell out of the fucking plane. So he does a loop-de-loop, and she literally just falls out. Thankfully... She was able to deploy her parachute oh, and land it safely. I was safely. like, please tell me she had a This was a I very this short was gonna, story. I thought this was going to be like, and she died. Yeah, the end. I was like, oh, geez. Legacy. <laughs> but then she had to walk all the way back to the airbase, dragging the parachute behind her. Oh, jeez. Like, good God. Yeah, because you know if she didn't, they would be like, uh, we're charging you for that parachute. Right. It, rem- it makes me think of the song, Buckle It Up. Buckle it up, buckle it up, or you'll die. It's from Bob's Burgers. Oh, yeah, but yeah. Always remember that one. Wear your seatbelts, guys. Yeah, please. Meg's kids, you, you better, better be wearing your seatbelts seat right now. <laughs> so thing. Uh, so Hazel graduated, and she was assigned to the fourth class, forty-three W four. Don't know what that means. Becoming the first Chinese American woman to fly for the United States military. Yeah, but wait, there's more. Despite having undergone military training, flying for the military, and operating under military command, WASPs weren't considered as actual military pilots, but rather civilian contractors. No, because then they would have to pay them a military pension. Exactly. And they hate doing that for women. And give them honors. Yeah. So you know all those benefits that come with serving in the military? Like potential citizenship, apparently? They weren't entitled to any of that. You get no disability. You get no pension. You get shit. Yeah. Wasps were also assigned the missions that male pilots didn't want, such as flying winter missions in open cockpit planes. Yeah, they got the shit missions. Yeah. Can you imagine how cold it is, like, flying in the air, and then it's snowing, and you, like, what? That's why they always had those, like, scarves, and they were bundled up, because it was fucking cold. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, they face sexism and hostility from male pilots and commanders. The base commander at Camp Davis in North Carolina, which I guess was pretty notorious for being like a shit show towards women. So this dude told WASP pilots that, quote, both they and the planes were expendable. Wow. Way to lead, dude. That guy 
That guy better not have gotten any honors. He should have been taken away. Oh, I bet he was just fine and lived out his days in comfort. So they were denied practice time and they were even suspect. There was even suspected sabotage of their planes. So like other pilots are are fucking up their planes because they're just a bunch of schoolyard bullies who can't handle the fact that a woman is there. They're threatened and they're angry. And 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 we've seen that before with women in the military. Oh, yeah. Like, it's terrible. Uh, Commanders had to be forced to assign the WASPs missions. After graduation, Hazel was stationed in Romulus, Michigan, where she flew missions to deliver aircraft to where they would be shipped to the European or Pacific fronts. So basically, they had converted the automobile factories in Michigan to manufacture aircraft, which Hazel would then deliver to different ports in the U.S. where they would then be shipped to the front. Mm. And this was critical to the war effort because how do you think they get those planes? Right. They have to come from somewhere. So Rosie the Riveter hands Hazel the Wasp the plane and she flies it to where it needs to go and then it makes it to the war. Right, which is badass. Yeah. Hazel described this as a, as quote, a seven-day work week with little time off. Oh, I bet. Because, like, you don't have Planes time off. Planes are needed off. all the time. Yeah. yeah. They're getting shot down like crazy. You know, you need the plane now. I don't care if you're tired. You need to get the plane where it needs to go. The work was hard and the hours were long, but Hazel remained passionate. She would, Aww. as a fellow pilot said, quote, take and deliver anything. And that she was, quote, calm and fearless. Even though Hazel was flying within the United States, her work wasn't without danger. So during one of her flights, Hazel had to make an emergency landing in a Kansas wheat field. The farmer who tended to the field thought Hazel was a Japanese soldier and attacked her with his pitchfork. Oh, Jesus And he was screaming about how the Japanese had invaded, which I bet at the time was a genuine fear. And just like I talked about with the Battle of Midway, totally possible. I don't think they're going to land in your Kansas wheat field. No. But who knows? Maybe it's because I don't think they will that they will. Right. Because they think that I don't think they will. But so they're like, I I'm going think to. They think that I don't. <laughs> oh, God. So Hazel is being chased by this crazed farmer with a pitchfork and has to run away from it. She's running around her plane and she has to like explain to him who she is and what she's doing. So the farmer asked, are you a China gal or a Japanese gal? To which Hazel replied, I'm a China gal, sir. And the farmer replied, and this is what Hazel wrote of the experience. This isn't me like paraphrasing. Dad gummit, girl, you sure made a pretty landing. (laughs) I like that he's like, okay, you're not an enemy. I'll compliment you. Dad gummit. Oh my God. I just love that that people said that. Right. So remember, this was during a time where anti-Japanese propaganda was everywhere, where American citizens of Japanese heritage were being imprisoned in internment camps. And I can only imagine that for many Japanese... Uh, the hate translated into Asian hate, you know, like you see an Asian person, you're like, are they Japanese? I don't care. I hate them. And we're just, we're, we're still in the era where they hate Chinese people anyway. Right. Exactly. And there's all that racism going on. Now this is sweet. You know how air force pilots would decorate their planes with like faces or insignias. You know, like they draw like the scary faces on them or they'd write things. 
Yeah. Hazel used lipstick to write Chinese characters on the tail of her plane and those of her fellow pilots. Aww. And I don't, I couldn't find what they said, but I was like, that's so sweet. Hazel openly embraced her Chinese heritage and would often cook Chinese food for others. I assume it was like real Chinese food. A fellow wasp, Sylvia Dames Clayton said, Hazel provided me with an opportunity to learn about a different culture at a time when I did not know anything else. She expanded my world and my outlook on life. Mm-hmm. Hazel's skills as a pilot didn't go unnoticed. In September of 1944, she was sent to pursuit school in Brownsville, Texas for intensive training where she learned to fly what was called pursuit, which basically means she would fly fast, high-powered fighter planes. So her favorite plane was the P-51 Mustang. So basically, she's learning to, to instead of like the plane she's already transporting, she's yeah. learning to transport like these fighter planes. That's cool. Just a couple of months later, on November 10th, 1944, Hazel received orders to fly to Bell Aircraft Factory in Niagara Falls, New York. Her mission was to fly a P-63 King Cobra to Great Falls, Montana. This was an important link in the supply chain of aircraft for the Soviets fighting the Nazis. So a lot of this aircraft would end up in Montana. Uh, Then... Uh, a male pilot would fly it to Alaska where Soviet pilots would fly them to their designated bases in Russia. Hmm. So Hazel was flying planes to Montana pretty regularly. So Hazel got stuck in Fargo, North Dakota for a time due to weather. But on the morning of November 23rd, she left Fargo for Great Falls, Montana. She waited for the control tower to clear her to land. However, The control tower made a mistake, and when they cleared Hazel to land, they set her on course to collide with another P-63, which was also trying to land. The aircraft burst into flames, and Hazel was pulled from the burning wreckage. She had suffered severe burns, and... did both planes burst into flames, or just hers? I think so, because they were on the runway... And they crashed into each other. This wasn't like in the middle yeah, of the air. Yeah, basically like one was landing from one direction. She was landing from the other. And That's it, what it kind of oh. sounds like. Um, yeah, because the control tower told them to go at the same time. And it just... Mm. So two days later on November 25th of 1944, Hazel died at only 33 years old. That's so sad. Hazel's family was devastated by the news. But because this story is where happiness just goes to die... Just three days after the Lees learned of Hazel's death, they received news that their son, Hazel's brother Victor, who had been serving in the U.S. Tank Corps, had been killed while fighting in France. But wait! It gets worse! No! Because fuck everything! So the Lees decided to bury Hazel and Victor in a Portland cemetery, but the cemetery wouldn't allow them to be buried in the chosen plots because Asians weren't allowed to be buried in the white section. Oh, Jesus Christ. Why did they let them pick those plots then? That's my thing. I'm like, I like their last name is Lee. What did you fucking think? Right. Jesus Christ. Like racism aside, you're an idiot. (laughs) So I'm going to give everyone... Just a moment to scream or cry or process your feelings however you see fit. In and out. The Lees fought this super racist policy and prevailed. Hazel was buried in a non-military funeral next to her brother in Riverview Cemetery overlooking the Willamette River. Why a non-military funeral, I know you're wondering? Because she wasn't considered military. She was just a civilian. Legacy. 
Hazel was one of 38 wasps who died or went missing during their service. The wasps flew over 60 million miles, transported every kind of military aircraft, and provided a crucial service to their country and the war effort. On June 21, 1944, a bill was proposed in the U.S. House to give WASPs military status, but it was defeated 188 to 169. It was argued that the WASPs were unnecessary and expensive, which I'm like, what? I'm sorry, where are all the male pilots to do this? They're off fighting, and you need to get these planes to them, you right. know? Like, that's really all that matters. Yeah. So things came to a head when the WASPs basically demanded to be commissioned as full military pilots or disband the program. The program was officially disbanded on December 20th, 1944. Despite this, 71 women who were in the final class to graduate from the WASP program still continued their program and graduate on December 7th, 1944, which was the three-year anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. That necessitated us getting involved in the war. Yep. So, yeah, they found out uh, that they wouldn't have jobs by December 20th, but they still persisted and graduated on December 7th. They're like, no, we committed to this. We're going to finish our training. Women desperately wanted to keep flying, and some even offered to keep flying missions as civilians, but they were rejected. It sounds to me like there's a lot more to this. Again, for time's sake, I'm keeping it pretty simple. But it seems to me that the second they were like, hey, can we get some like benefits and recognition over here? They were like, oh, no, they're organized. Squash them. Squash them out completely. Like, Like, oh, they're starting to realize they might have power. Earth, Yeah. Because most wartime files were classified for 35 years, the contributions of the WASP program long went unrecognized. But you know women, we like to talk, and the story of WASP pilots began to gain recognition and traction. Surviving pilots began to campaign for recognition as military veterans. Long, agonizing story short, in 1977... WASP pilots were finally granted veteran status, and in 1984, each pilot was awarded the World War II Victory Medal. And I assume that was also posthumously retroactive for anyone who had passed away. I would hope so. In 2004, Hazel was inducted into Oregon's Aviation Hall of Honor. On May 28, 2005, the National WASP World War II Museum opened on the Sicky... Sixty... The (laughs) Sicky... That's That's a Freudian slip. That's me. The sickie (laughs) on the 62nd anniversary of the first graduating class. In 2010, then President Obama granted all WASP pilots the Congressional Gold Medal. And this was retroactive, so Hazel received it posthumously. That same year, a PBS documentary aired about Hazel called A Brief Flight, Hazel Ying Lee and the Women Who Flew Pursuit. Hazel was a trailblazer who broke down racial and gender barriers, but she didn't like to think of herself that way. She only focused on flying. She was just a pilot. I know. And that is the story of just a pilot, Hazel Ying Lee. And it was a little long, but it touched on a lot of these interesting historical, you know, milestones and events and... I don't know. I had never heard of the WASP program, which 
having a women's history podcast i'm embarrassed not like extensively like i covered the night witches before i got to these ladies good job i'm proud of you thank you so kelly who are you whining about today i am whining about ruth handler Ruth Handler. I love that name, Ruth. I know. Ruth is a good name. Oh, it's it's one of those old names that I want to bring back. Like, all the little girls are Avas and Evas. Right. You know, Not all that the those boys. are bad names. No, there's nothing wrong with them, but it's like, okay, there's like 20 billion of you now. Did I ever tell you my mom wanted to name me Caitlin, but by the time mm. I was born, every kid was named yeah. Caitlin, and there's 20 billion ways to or spell Sarah. that name. There were so many Sarahs in my school. You know what name I really like? I had one one girl I grew up with, Nora. I I really like that name. name. That's a you never hear that name anymore. I feel like that's a pretty classic. I feel like they kind of died with our generation. Yeah, you still hear Emily's. Emily's are out there. We're powerful. I always loved it if we had a kid at the daycare whose name was Emily. I was always like, ah, you're my buddy. (laughs) All the Emily's were cool. Okay, so Ruth was born Ruth Mariana Mosco in Denver, Colorado. All right. Her family was Polish Jew- Jewish immigrants, um, Ida Moscow and Jacob Moscow. It makes me think of Mouskowitz, <laughs> like yeah, from Five. Yeah. <laughs> but no, um, n- there's not a lot about her like childhood. She would go on to marry her high school boyfriend named Elliot Handler, and they would move to Los Angeles together in 1938. Cool, cool. So but- she's she's hanging around the same time hazel is yeah so they're in los angeles and her husband decides to make furniture out of uh two newfound plastics or new at the time which was lucite and plexiglass so this is right when they're coming out and he's like you know what i'm gonna make furniture out of them oh my god you know those like plexiglass tables where it's like all rounded and it's it's just like clear plastic and they were so cool and modern for a hot second now they just look like trash exactly so they began the furniture business business, and Ruth worked as the sales force for the new business, landing contracts such as with Douglas Aircraft Company and others. So as that continued, her husband, Elliot Handler, got a business partner named Harold Matt Matson. <laughs> I'm sorry. Matt is a nickname. Okay. I'm like, your parents hated you. Right. <laughs> um, so they formed a small company to manufacture picture frames, calling it Mattel. By oh, co- by combining their names, Matt and Elliot. Oh, shit. OK, I'm um, I'm on board. I'm engaged. So <laughs> Ruth is obviously also a part of this company. And so they were making picture frames. And then later they began using scraps um, to make dollhouse furniture. And on the weekends home from wartime at Camp Camp Robert, because her husband was in the military, um, Elliot would make this toy furniture for Ruth to sell while he was away in the military. The furniture was far more profitable than the picture frames, and they decided to concentrate on toy manufacturing. Uh, the company's first big seller was something called the Yucca Doodle, which was a toy ukulele. And by the mid-1940s, the young company would be making revenues of about $2 million, which is 20, $29.2 million today. Good grief from making toy u- ukuleles. Right. Uh, so... They presided over the plastic ukulele fad, and then they would also go on to sell toy pianos and launched a music box that would sell 20 million units. Can you imagine, even if you sold those for a dollar each, that's $20 million. Right. So as they're making toys and stuff, Ruth 
noticed that her daughter Barbara, who was who was becoming a preteen at this time, oh my god, played with paper dolls by pretending that they were adults, and she noticed that you know her child would act out future events rather than what was going on in the present. She noted the limitations of the paper dolls, including how like their clothing wouldn't really attach to them, and you know other just constraints that you have with a you know flat doll. So she wanted to produce a three dimensional plastic pa- paper doll. You're not. I am. Oh my god. With an adult body and a wardrobe of fabric clothing. Oh my god. <laughs> Her husband and Mr. Matson um were like, no, the parents aren't going to buy realistic looking adult dolls for their children and so they were like no like we're not going to do that so eventually they would go to take uh their two teenagers barbara and ken oh my god i didn't know that are you fucking so they took them on a trip to europe in 1956 and in a west german village um ruth found what was called the build lily doll which was not a children's toy but it was an adult gag gift but it was like a plastic you know female doll basically it was like if a guy wanted to have sex with you he'd buy you the doll and give it to you as like uh so you want a fucking bone that's funny yeah Yeah. i saw i saw a documentary about it and i was like people were so weird i think if a guy gave me an anatomically correct doll of an adult woman and like winked at me i'd be like 911 can't get here fast right like you creep creeping yeah um so she bought the doll and brought it home And this doll was basically her representation of the concept she had been thinking of. Um, And at this time, she was one of the executives slash president of Mattel. So she was like trying to get everyone else on board with her. And so she was like, okay, you know, I have I have kind of what I want. And so like she was like, you know, this is so different than the baby dolls. That is basically the only thing on the market right now. So she was like, okay, I want, I want to make a doll that's for, you know, girls that are slightly older, that are beginning to understand the concepts of being a teenager and being an adult. And her doll was aimed to fill that gap in the industry. Well, and at the time, the only way that children could play with dolls was to like prepare for motherhood. Exactly. You know, yeah. there, there was none it of was this only like. only baby dolls or paper dolls that you made yourself. Yeah. There, there was not this kind of like aspirational, you know this doll is me or this doll I'm living through somehow. It was, no, I'm pretending to be a mother because I will do that someday and I need to practice. Right. So once home, she reworked the design of the doll and named her Barbie after their daughter, Barbara. Barbie debuted at the New York Toy Fair on March 9th, 1959 and was actually an immediate success. Um... So, like, it was huge. And when Disney originally introduced the Mickey Mouse Club uh, children's television show, Mattel invested heavily in advertising on that channel. Smart. Um, so the TV commercials for Barbie paid off, and Barbie rocketed Mattel and the handlers to fame and fortune. Subsequently, they would end up adding a boyfriend for Barbie named Ken after the handler's son, which is a little weird, but we're yeah. just going to get past <laughs> that. Um, and they would actually go on... As most people know today, they they would end end up adding a lot of other like friends and family. Yeah, there's like Skipper and Kelly, and then there was Midge, who was like an unwed mother for a hot second. Until right, there's just a whole bunch a of a bunch now. of people freaked out because there wasn't a little yellow line painted on her right. finger. So Ruth, this is a quote from Ruth. 
Barbie has always represented that a woman has choices, even in her early years. Barbie did not have to settle for only being Ken's girlfriend or an inveterate shopper. She had the clothes, for example, to launch a career as a nurse, a stewardess, a nightclub singer. I believe the choices Barbie represents helped the doll catch on initially, not with not just with daughters who would one day make up the first major wave of women in management and professionals, but also with their mothers. I know Barbie is kind of a hotly debated topic as far as like body image and things go. And I... It's fine. And... Uh, I don't want to discount anyone's feelings about that because that wasn't my experience. I love Barbies growing up. I love playing pretend with my Barbies. I, it was always like I was living out through them. You know, right. I was making up stories and characters with my Barbies and I never really saw myself as the same or even different. Like, I don't think I could quite process that. No, that's so not either. how a human looks or how I want to look like that. Like, right. The, it was a toy. It was an extension of my imagination for me. So in the 1960, uh, the handlers finally took Mattel public with a valuation of $10 million, which was, I think, like $70 million today. Just a Um, fuck ton of money. It was well on its way to being a Fortune 500 company, which it definitely is now. Um, And Barbie quickly became this icon with an ever-changing wardrobe, career options that mirrored women's changing aspiration of the day. Um, Or... Originally, and I didn't know this, Ruth had actually actually created a personal story for the very first Barbie doll. She was named Barbie Millicent Roberts from Willows, Wisconsin. Yep. And Barbie was a teenage fashion model. Now, however, the doll has made many versions uh, connected to over 125 different careers. I'm pretty sure there's actually more than that now. Oh, there's gotta be. But including female president of the United States, which I think is great. Oh, Yeah. Um, originally Barbie came as either brunette or blonde. In 1961, they added a redhead. And in 1980, they added an African-American and a Hispanic Barbie. Did it really take until the 80s to get black Barbie? Yeah. I, okay. I had like a weird kick when I was a kid where I thought black Barbie was prettier than all the other Barbies. I loved her. So I remember there was this one Barbie where she was a mermaid and like she was a normal Barbie with legs and everything. But then there was like this tight skirt with a with a flipper it was like gold and shiny that you could put over her to turn her into a mermaid oh yeah and I she remember had a that. crown yeah. and I, I had one of those and you know they had okay so Kelly and I grew up in the 90s so we always knew black Barbie but it was blonde Barbie brunette Barbie and black Barbie like I feel like those there were was the a three you always too, saw but I think the redhead had a different name yeah um but I had the black Barbie one. A lot of my Barbies were black because I thought they were prettier. Aww. And there's actually a picture of me sitting on the front steps of my grandpa and I'm holding that Barbie That's in my adorable. hand. I remember that Barbie. I wanted it so You're bad. so progressive. Oh my God. No, it's it's not. I don't no, know why. Just, yeah, it's just how I, You know was. what part of it was? I love that show. Uh, was it Gullah Gullah Island? Do you remember that? It was on like Nick Jr. Nope. Well, it was, uh, it was about this like family who lived on Gullah Gullah Island. And there was this like giant yellow frog which was just a dude in a suit that was called binya binya or something but they were a black family and a lot of the stories revolved around like african heritage or that's cool i don't i like i don't even remember i'm probably making some of this up but i thought that i loved that show i thought the family was so cool and i was like i want black barbie because she's like gala gala island barbie I don't know. That's adorable. Anyways, the first Barbie was sold for $3 and additional clothing based on the latest runway trends from Paris were sold uh, as well between $1 and $5, just kind of depending. 
1959, the which was the year Barbie was originally released, 300,000 Barbies were sold. Today, oh my today God. a mint condition number one Barbie um, can fetch as much as $27,000. I'm he, sure that is only going to go up. You know what I love about the original Barbie? So it's, you know, she's blonde. She's in the like black and white swimsuit. Mm-hmm. She looks like a sly bitch because she she's got this side eye and like this bitchy little like smirk. smile. It's like, yeah, yeah it's where she learned. I don't even think she's smiling. She looks like she's judging you. She's it's like, kind of like the, mo- the Mona Lisa smile where there's like a hint of a smile, but it's not an actual smile. But she's got so much fucking attitude right? and she's it's giving fantastic. you this look like, bitch, I know I'm better than you. And I'm like, you kind of are. <laughs> right. So as Emily mentioned, there's been a lot of controversy over Barbies. One of the main controversies is, um, Barbie's figure in particularly because uh, it was realized that if Barbie was a real person, her measurements would be impossible. She'd be 36, 18, 38. So she would be five inches. She would have a five inch bust, uh, three and one fourth, or this is Barbie's real measurements. She has a five inch bust, a three and a fourth inch waist and a five and three sixteenths inch hips. Her weight is seven and a fourth ounces and her height is 11.5 inches. So like they they took that and extrapolated and extrapolated to a, like to a real person and yeah it would I was gonna say her waist is too small to hold up the rest of her body yeah she'd like crumple from the waist down she would just collapse right. in on herself because her tits are too big exactly so in addition to all the other types of Barbies um, in 1965 so just um, six years after it was released um, they made a bendable leg and eyes that open Barbie, which sounds creepy as fuck. It's like those dolls where you lie them on their back and they, they close their yeah, eyes. it's creepy. I do remember having like a bendable Barbie where like her, her legs were like rubber. Oh, I remember when I learned that my Barbie's knees could move yeah. because you had to yeah, yeah. Uh, crack But it was like a them. weird crack. Yeah, that. Yeah, ugh. I thought I broke my Barbie. I discovered that on accident. I remember being like, I've cracked the code. This is some Indiana Jones, like Da Vinci Code it, shit. Like, sound, <laughs> like it feels like you're breaking her leg when it you do it. It sounds like you're breaking yeah. her leg. I actually had a bunch of stories where my Barbie broke their leg and I would make that cracking sound nice. where I was like, Barbie broke her leg. <laughs> she was never named Barbie though. I thought no, that was way not. too femme. Um, so, and then, so they had the, the bendable legs one, which I don't think exists anymore. And then in 1967, they had a twist and turn Barbie that had a movable body that twisted at the waist. However, the best-selling Barbie doll of all time was the Totally Hair Barbie that released in 1992 that had hair that went from her head all the way down to her toes. Yep. I don't think I had that, but I remember it. And then couldn't you, like, color her hair? No, I think that was a different one. Okay. Maybe that that was a little So back to Ruth. Ruth, yes. I'm sorry. Barbie? What? (laughs) Uh, She's the mother of Barbie. That's That's what she called herself. I mean, she's not wrong. She, right? She's correct in two different ways. Right. So Ruth would go on, you know, to basically just continue helping run Mattel. She was the president and, you know, she would, you know, she was dealing with Barbie. Business bitch. She would go on to be diagnosed with breast cancer in 1970. Oh. Um, and she had a modified radical mastectomy, uh, which was used at the time to combat the disease. It still is today. Yep. Um, however, at the time there was a lot of difficulties in finding a good breast prosthetic. So she decided to make her own out of plastic. So she worked with Peyton Massey and, uh, founded the Ruthton Corp, which manufactured a more realistic version of a woman's breast called the nearly me. She would actually personally fit one for the first lady, Betty Ford. 
Wow. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know any of that. That's really fascinating. Right. So then she would go on to retire um, or resign from Mattel because there were investigations of fraudulent financial reports. um, And she was eventually charged with fraud and false reporting. She pleaded no contest and was fined. Um, She blamed her illness for making her unfocused on her business. So she's, she's not sure what happened. Like she's, she, you know, I don't know if I totally buy that. I feel like I don't know. I feel like if I had cancer and then I was being investigated for like mass fraud, I would definitely play the cancer card. Right. Good cancer. <laughs> um. So though, and in their later years, the handlers took a more hands-off approach to their company's business practice. Um, they what continued you did there. what? The handlers took a more hands-off business approach. See, I can Kelly, be punny too. It's just always on accident. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so one project in particular Ruth took on, um, in the 1980s was Barbie and the Rockers. She was credited as the writer of the film Barbie and the Rockers out of this world, which is really cool. So she worked on a film. She was then inducted into the junior achievement U S business hall of fame in 1997. And as we know, Barbie is still alive and prominent in today's youth as children around the world adore, um, the set of dolls and advertisements are still played on channels with younger audiences. Um, Ruth would go on to die in California from complications of a surgery from uh, colon cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. So she had breast cancer and and then colon cancer. That sucks. She died on April 27th, 2002 at the age of 85. Her husband would go on to die nine years later at the age of 95. Oh, I thought she was still alive. No. Oh, man. I just watched a show a couple years ago, The Toys That Made Us, and every episode profiles a different toy that was prominent in, like, the 80s and 90s, and Barbie has its own episode, and she's interviewed in it, and so I think I just assumed she was still alive. Right. So, so, um, legacy. So, as we know, you know, one, breast prosthetics have gotten incredibly better, so it's really cool that she made one. And then, two, you know... Bar- like we said, Barbies are still inspirational around the world, as well as other doll lines. Like, you know, people copied Barbie's design and, you know, there's brats. like brats and <laughs> there's like Those the Disney one. Ones. And yeah, like there's all the, you know, and currently there's a Barbie doll line called the Barbie Fashionista line. And almost all Barbie lines today come in several body types, skin tones and hairstyles. Um, this adult, this allows the dolls to reflect a diverse range of bodies. Um, and because of the influence of these dolls, you know, there's also Barbie clubs, TV shows, games, and many other media. And it was, it was the handlers, but particularly like Ruth, like she was the one that wanted to do this. And it's her vision that provided this outlet for makers and teenage and preteen, you know, kids kids to act out all of this stuff. You know, and it's still relevant today. Like we said, there's a lot more dolls on the market, but Ruth is, you know, basically who invented the modern plastic doll. She is. At, and, you know, I... Which is great, because porcelain dolls are creepy as fuck. Oh, God, right? Whose idea was that? Everything was haunted back then anyway. They have like, one. My mom, like, because my grandma gave me one when I was little, and my mom was like, do you want it? And I said no, but then my mom left it. So it's upstairs in its box because it, oh, it's no. creepy. Jared's uh, stepmom has a bunch of porcelain dolls that I think she may have inherited, but 
she's like, oh, I don't know who to pass them down to because no one wants them. Right, and you're like, like, no. Because they're creepy. I don't want them. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Ruth is a bit of a controversial figure. Barbie is controversial, you know, but right. I would you say can't Ruth, deny Ruth the impact. A lot more good than she did bad. And then, you know, yeah, she had cancer and she, you know. And it doesn't sound like she stole money. It just sounds like that she reported it incorrectly. Okay. Well, you know, we're, we're all about talking warts and all. But no, exactly. Like, she fucked up. She admits she fucked up. Yes, she blames her cancer for it. But, you know, it happened. Yeah, she and was she found went guilty. On to, she went price. on to make, uh, yeah, it was, what did I say, $57,000. That's nothing. And then, like, 240,000 hours of community service. That's nothing for her. No. God. But yeah, no, I mean, it, it's kind of like Disney, you know, love it or hate it. It's so prevalent. You can't, you can't deny well, its no, impact on our cultural landscape. I never realized landscape. it was made by a woman. Really? I, I saw a documentary in college about it and I had to write it for the the school blog or something. Right. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because they, they talked about, yeah, the Germanic yeah. quote unquote sex doll. That wasn't really a sex doll because right. it was like a Barbie you would give to someone yeah, you want like to have sex gift, with. Basically. And I was like, I'm sorry, people did what now? And know, then we turned so it into weird. a children's toy. Awesome. Way to go. But I think it's cool that she had the idea first. And, you know, it wasn't like she went over to Germany, saw it and was like, I'm going to make this in the U.S. But better. You but know, no, she children. had the idea and then was like, oh, my God, this is what I was thinking of. Yeah. No, that's so that's so fascinating. And yeah, Barbie has had every job from McDonald's line worker to president. president. Yeah. Oh, she's been a mermaid. She's been like a butterfly princess. Right. I'm oh, pretty man. sure basically almost almost anything you can think of that's not like weird or she's creepy. a programmer now too. They have like gamer Barbie. I know it's great, and I do like that they are focusing on providing more diverse looking dolls. I like that they changed her body type for some of the dolls. I haven't really seen, I, God, when was the last time I was down a Barbie aisle? We should hit up Target one of these days and just troll around the doll aisle. Right? Like, I feel like I've gone, I feel like I've gone down it, but it was like, as I was looking at like the board games and then that's the aisle like close by. So I would use that to cut back to the main aisle, but I never actually like, was like, hmm, what kind of Barbies are there? You know? Right, right. Well, and my my one friend who has a daughter who's around the age to appreciate Barbies, it, you know, with COVID and everything, I haven't seen her her daughter in a while. And like her birthday is, she just had her birthday. So of course there's no birthday party. Right. So, so yeah, I haven't been, I haven't been doll shopping in a while, but soon Jared's nieces will be at that age where I can just throw Barbies at them like crazy. Right. I know. It'll be nice. Yeah. Did I, I don't know you? if my niece plays with Barbies. I don't think she really does. Really? Did I tell Do you, you know that? They, uh, they have an alopecia Barbie. I've seen that one oh, before, they but they, they have a Barbie that has alopecia and I think it's the best thing ever. They have. Okay. I don't know if this was made by Mattel or if someone else made these, but they have Barbies that have the, um, the skin disorder where they're missing melanin. Yeah. So it's it, alopecia. No, alopecia is oh, where you're missing all your sorry. hair. That's the kind of Barbie that they have then. Okay, the, the, where they're mis- the melanin is not yes. as concentrated in certain My parts bad. of their body. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. What a fascinating thing to learn about. Because, yeah, I feel like every girl listening, like, we all know Barbie. Love her or hate her, you know her. Right, you know who it is. You have some memory or association or feelings, you know? Yeah. Mine are largely positive. I'm not going to, I'm not saying like, 
I stand for Barbie or anything, but I love my Barbies as a kid. Right. Like, and I, I do think it's great that she covers all the, like all careers and like, yeah. you know, it, it, I, whether, you know, you view them as positive or negative, you know, it does show girls like you can be anyone you want. See, here's a Barbie that has a more realistic figure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's got cute thighs. Look at her. Right? Like, she looks basically like us, you know? Yeah. Like, I was going to sm- say. She has smaller boobs and, you know, bigger hips and slightly bigger waist. She's not like a stick. Yeah. Well, she thank has you. pink hair, which is bad. I was going to say, the hair gets me. I love the hair. Well, thank you for sharing that. Ruth You're Handler, welcome. man. It's funny. I didn't recognize her name, but the second you started talking like dolls. When I said Barbara, you were like, oh, shit. I know. my. Fa- I wish this was a video episode because my face was uncontrollable. It was great. It was awful. <laughs> it was great. I love you. So, Kelly. Yes. What are you thankful for today? What am I thankful for? I'm thankful for things, not necessarily getting back to normal per se, but more normal, at least in my life, because I have been fully vaccinated and several people that I used to hang out with have been fully vaccinated. So we've been able to start game night again with our little vaccinated bubble. Yeah. Vax um, back. Yeah. With our <laughs> which has been really, really nice. Like it gives, because I work from home now, like it kind of gives me that boost of social interaction that I really needed. Um, and I was able to see one of my friends that I haven't seen in like a year and a half this weekend. And he brought me flowers, which is really nice. That's so sweet. Mainly because he had to stop at a, he has a smart car or not a smart car, um, electric an electric car. car. So he had to stop somewhere to charge his car and it happened to be at a gas station. He was like, I felt really weird just being in their parking lot. So I went into the grocery store, but then I didn't need anything. So I just bought, brought flower, bought flowers because I wanted to buy something. I love it. He bought guilt flowers. He didn't buy gum. I mean, it's Joe. He bought flowers. It was Joe. So. Oh, Joe. But it was just funny. He was like, I needed to buy something. So here's some flowers. And I mean, it wasn't like a huge bouquet or anything, yeah. but like still, I just thought that was funny. I'm like, I guess that's kind of me. Like generally, if I go into a store, like I'm like, I feel, unless it's like a clothing store, like I feel weird walking out without buying something. Yeah. Especially grocery stores. Can I tell you when Jared was followed out of a, a store once because he walked in and didn't buy anything? And they thought he was stealing? Yeah. So we stopped at like the hy gas station because I think we were trying to find like pancake mix or something. Yeah. And I thought they might have it in the little gas station because I didn't want to go into the big fucking grocery store. No, you're store. like, if I can avoid this, I'm I'm the same way. Like if I, if I think I can get it at Quick Trip, yeah. I will go to Quick Trip first. Yeah, so he walked in there, and he had this, like, big poofy winter coat, and he walked around, didn't see a pancake mix, and walked out, and as he's, like, getting to the car, an employee, like, walks out and is, like, staring at him, and Jared goes, yeah, I think they were following me and, like, staring me down around the store, and I'm like, well, that's super great for someone with PTSD to experience. Thanks, guys. Well, and, like, I understand. I bet... They have people steal all the time. But part of me is also like, do you get paid enough to actually give a shit? Right. Like, I wonder if maybe it was like the manager or something. Maybe. But I was like, oh, and now you're like, what are you going to do? You're watching him get into his own car. You're not saying anything. I'm pretty sure you can't. Stop. 
Yeah, no, I don't think they can. Yeah, a lot like, of places. Uh, I mean, have a lot of places have like a confrontational uh, policy. A lot of places have like I know when I worked at Walmart, like we had a specific security personnel, and he was like the only like if you thought someone was stealing, you couldn't do anything. You had right. to call them. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I was like, chill out, guys. It's a little Hy-Vee gas station convenience right. store. So, chill. what are you thankful for? Um, I am thankful. Uh, so recently, I was. I was uh, the featured member at my gym. Oh, <laughs> yeah! They like take your picture and you write a little thing about why you like the gym. And what? It's just like they just like they go through their on no, they go through like their memberships and they just pick someone at random. Kind of. I mean, it's like if you're there. So like, I know one of the people who works there, and so she approached me. She's like, "Hey, you're here all the time. Do you want to be a featured Aww. member?" I was like, "Fuck yeah!" So they took my picture where I'm like standing awkwardly next to a treadmill because I I almost like did a pose, but I was like, "No, make it look natural." So I just had my arms hanging there like an idiot. <laughs> but uh, I wrote a little thing to go with the Facebook post, and something that I said was, you know, I was recovering after two hip surgeries and trying to get back into shape because I remember you and I were trying to work out and I would have days where I, I couldn't because my right. hips were acting up. And so they posted that, you know, it was a thing. And I went to a cycling class this last Monday and this woman who looked to be around my age approached me and she's like, weren't you the featured member? And I was like, oh shit, I'm shocked you recognize me because we're all wearing masks. And I'm not wearing like the same outfit. But I was like, yeah. How long ago was this? This was um, maybe last week or something that they posted the picture. I can't find it on Facebook. Oh, I can pull it up for you. They post a fuck ton yeah, on they there. Because they have all these events and, and stuff. Like, what was last week? Yeah. But uh, this woman comes up to me and she said she had a hip surgery too. And Aww. it was, I don't know if it was the same exact one, but it was very similar. And she actually knew who my surgeon was. She had like the one other hip mm-hmm. surgeon. But we were talking about it. <laughs> Kelly's all excited. Oh, you look I adorable. look so stupid. I'm just no, like. No, you, don't, you eh. really don't. Like you, I mean, okay. If, if I. I look awkward. <laughs> it's not, it's not that bad. Like you look like you're about to do something. Yeah. Cause I was about to get on the fucking. Exactly. Treadmill. So I well, think it's fine. I didn't expect to have my picture taken. So I also like, I'm just like in gym mode or my hair's like crappily pulled back. Anyway, point of the story, this woman approached me. She had also had a hip surgery and, uh, she was asking me, she's like, I'm nine months in. Does it get better after the year? I was like, it does. It was totally life-changing for me. Getting my hip surgery. And she's like, that makes me feel so much better to hear. And it's really nice to see someone else who had it. She's like, you're so young. Like you're younger than me. I'm like, Am I though? Because like, how old are you? Yeah, let's, let's put this to the test. Like, I just turned thirty. I feel like I'm not younger than anyone anymore. <laughs> but uh, that I don't know. That was just like a really cool interaction, yeah. and to meet someone else who's had hip surgery and so young too. Well, that's really cool to be like you know to be able to like provide that comfort. Because yeah, I remember when you had your hip surgery, and yeah, for like the first six to nine months, it fucking sucked for you. But then oh, I yeah. remember, like, I remember like. I couldn't tell you the specific time frame, but like I remember when I could see you start like getting your groove back and like that your hip, particularly more so after your second surgery than yeah. your first, that when you were really like, yeah, starting to move more. And like I could tell you didn't, you weren't having those days where you're just like, I don't want to do anything because I hurt so bad. Yeah, because I can't because I can't move. So that's great that you could provide that comfort. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like a, a fun little smiley thing, like, yay. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com where we would love to hear from you. You know, be like Meg. Send us an email. Yeah. Meg, send us another email. Yeah, we love you. Uh, let us know that you heard this. Let I us know. know how your children reacted. Yeah, like, did they freak out? I really hope, lie to me. Tell me they were super, like, impressed, oh my God, right? Kelly and Emily. Um, what else? We have a Teespring where if you search just whining about her story, you can find our merch. We also have a Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1. All of our links to all of our stuff are on any of our social medias. We have a little link tree that'll lead you to anywhere you want to go. Yes, we do. Uh, Also, please rate us five stars wherever you listen. It is hugely helpful. It costs you nothing. It makes us feel good. It helps other people find the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's literally the least you could do. Do Yeah, like if you can't donate monetarily or anything else, like that, it's a good way to help us without putting any money in there yeah and for everyone who has left a five-star review thank you i'm sure you're sick of like us demanding five-star reviews when you're like i already did it i saw that and it i makes thank us you so happy yeah i'll reread those them my favorite is still the if you're looking for a serious history lecture this, this is, is not, not for you i'm gonna put, that on, a t-shirt. I'm gonna put that on a t-shirt upcoming merch All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.